0: Hello and welcome to Planet Watch, Big Solutions to Earth-Size Problems. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman.
1: And I'm Joe Jordan.
0: And today on the program, a conversation with Gene and Jerry Thomas of Thomas Farms. They're two pioneer organic farmers with decades of experience in growing food and flowers without pesticides. We'll talk about the impact pesticides and fertilizers are having on ecosystems worldwide and how organic could save countless species, including our own, while feeding hungry humans.
1: We have a new podcast. You can c- subscribe at planetwatchradio.com. And that's a brand new website of ours also. If you want to get in touch with us or ask our guests a question, email us here. RadioPlanetWatch at gmail.com. But first, a short look at some top news stories in science this week.
0: All right. We're so excited to have a couple of interns on deck, including Maya Rodriguez, who has a story for you about the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association. Sorry, administration. <laughs> got that right. New research by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration
2: reveals that global warming is impacting Australia's green sea turtle population in a surprising way. The rising temperatures of the sand are causing up to 99% of hatchlings to be born female. Researchers have known for years that sand temperatures determine the sex of hatchlings and that warmer sand produces more females. But this is the first time that such a drastic change in the demographic has been documented in wild populations. With virtually no males being born in certain colonies, scientists fear that this endangered species will not be able to sustain itself in the coming decades. In response to the research, wildlife managers are finding ways to lower incubation temperatures to help green sea turtle populations adapt to the wild, I'm sorry, the rapidly changing environment.
0: Thank you for that, Maya, and Tommy Martin has a story for you that might explain why we have been experiencing uh, extreme weather events and what we might look forward or not look forward to as it were in the future as our climate changes.
2: Yeah. Heat waves and droughts have become more extreme in the past 50 years. Scientists at the University of Arizona have found that changes in the path of the North Atlantic jet stream since the 1960s coincide with more extreme weather events in Europe and North America. Looking at the rings found in tree stumps, which show a history of weather changes, scientists reconstructed changes in the North Atlantic jet stream over three centuries. Researchers determined that the swings between the northern and southern positions of the jet stream became more frequent and extreme in the second half of the 20th century. When the jet stream is in the extreme northern position, Western Europe experiences a heat wave while southeastern Europe sees heavy rains and flooding. Meanwhile, in North America, this winter's extreme cold and snow in the northeast and extreme warmth and dryness in California coincide with the southern position of the jet stream. While the researchers don't blame any one cause for the shifts, some climate scientists suggests warmer ocean temperatures can impact the jet stream. There's a debate over whether increased variability of the jet stream is linked to man-made global warming. The, ma- the amount of date in this three-century study should yield answers.
0: Thank you, Tommy Martin. I believe that would be data. Um, yeah, sorry so about that. Three centuries apparently is enough time to really get a good read and that will help them be more sure about the connection. And uh, as you may have been following this story, Hawaiians were awoken yesterday with a shock as they received an emergency text warning them of an incoming ballistic missile. The message went out on cell phones, television, and radio. People prayed, said goodbyes, and rushed for shelter. Panic ensued, and many schools put into place evacuation processes in some case lowering children into manhole covers and sheltering in basements the text read ballistic missile threat inbound to hawaii seek immediate shelter this is not a drill in capital letters sirens went off but not on every island it took the government 38 minutes to notify the public that indeed it was a mistake however it would have taken 17 minutes for a ballistic missile to arrive in hawaii from korea the false alarm was sent by an employee that came on a shift change who pushed the wrong button. The director of emergency services in Hawaii took full responsibility, although it was one of his employees. The military shares all tracking and verification with civilian authorities. Hawaiian's emergency management system relies on the military because it does not have detection capability of its own. All future tests of the system have been suspended and now a two-person verification process has been put into place to avoid future false alarms. Still, millions of residents are angry and demanding answers and reassurances that it won't happen again. President Trump was on the golf course in Florida when the alert went out, and its aides referred reporters to the military when asked for a statement. His first tweet of the day that came nearly three hours after the incident was about a book critical of his presidency and made no mention of the Hawaii situation. And uh, now, uh, and now a story from Sanaa. But uh, first, a commentary. Yeah,
1: yeah, <clears throat> I got a couple quick items on that. Uh, just as Rachel was reading that, she said, "Pushed the wrong button." I was thinking, well, at least it wasn't the infamous nuclear button. Um, anyway. Um, There's one neat thing related to this and one dreadful thing related to this that have to be said. Uh, uh, Back on January 7th, just a few days ago, there was a brilliant flash in the middle of the night seen over much of Russia. And it's still a mystery. But at the time, partly due to this hair trigger that everybody's on now about nuclear attack, a whole lot of the population actually thought that it was maybe a U.S. strike on North Korea. Uh, The International Media Organization has not shown any... Record of any sightings of meteors, but there was this huge flash that turned the sky blue in the middle of the night. So it's still a mystery, so stay tuned. Uh, The more dreadful thing to say about this is that um, people just don't know about (laughs) nuclear war and what it really is. It's not something from comic books and from TV and movies. Uh, there's, there's a film that was made by a world-class local videographer here, Eric Tierman, called The Last Epidemic, The Medical Consequences of Nuclear Weapons and Nuclear War. You should look that up and see if you can find it. Anyway, it's dreadful stuff, and I dare say I know more about nuclear war than Trump. <laughs> anyway, not, uh, And just to, to add with.
0: on to that thought, um, the, the director of emergency services himself didn't know it wasn't a drill. And that was that. it was a mistake. He actually thought it was real, and it took him a while. That's why it took 38 minutes to tell people that he had to go down to the office and see if the intelligence had come through to, from the military or if someone literally had hit the wrong button. And in that interim, he was in the bathtub with his children telling them where the um, emergency food was, and he was in tears on the media because mm. in those last few minutes, you don't have much time to say what you need to say. All and right. those were the... That's why so many people are angry, is that they had to go through this is real for 38 minutes. Imagine mm-hmm. the angst and sorrow. You'd be feeling it saying goodbye to everything you knew, per- potentially. And then to find it was a mistake. The only silver lining I can see is that that was now a practice drill in case the worst should happen. Now people, A, they might think that Wolf is being cried and not do anything because they think maybe it was another mistake... Or indeed, they'll know directly what to do. So well, we, don't, also, we won't know that. It
1: is an opportunity to start calling the public's attention to the reality of just what nuclear war would entail, which is almost unthinkable. But maybe it's time to start talking about that. So we'll, we'll do and more of that And removing the
0: finger from the hair trigger. Right. That, that's right. That's there right now. Uh, what was most disturbing about the story to me is how clearly there's no one at the helm right now. But his aides were with him, and three hours later, he still had not made a statement. Yeah, this
1: country is seemed pretty... Seemed like
0: he was unaware of it.
1: This country is pretty headless, is how I would characterize it for the moment.
0: It's, it's, that alone ought to get our attention. Well, on... <laughs> I don't know if this is a, a better story, but on to another story from Sanaya today. Diminishing
2: sea ice and more temperate weather in the Arctic has encouraged a new Arctic tourism industry to emerge in Greenland and the Nordic countries. However, tourism in the Arctic may be a danger to travelers and a potential threat to the environment. The region is prone to severe and changing weather conditions that complicate and endanger travel. The high latitude also disrupts maritime navigational and communication systems. If an oil spill, crash, or machinery malfunction occurs, the region's remoteness makes an efficient emergency response nearly impossible. Pollutants released by massive cruise ships could further endanger local species, and contribute to the effects of greenhouse gas pollution. On the other hand, some scientists believe that tourism in the region could play a psychological role in visitors' desires to protect the environment.
0: And thank you to Sanaya. Lakshwana for that one and we have another topic we're going to just move over to next and we're very happy to be able to welcome into our studios here at Planet Watch uh, Jerry and Jean Thomas they grew up in Los Angeles or at least Jerry did attended college uh, at San Fernando Valley College now Cal State Northridge where Jerry earned a master's degree in urban and economic geography he's a fifth generation Californian which is a rare thing ...on his mother's side. He went to the Peace Corps in Guyana, South America. And his wife, Jean, who also grew up in L.A., wanted to leave the smog of Los Angeles... ...and come to Santa Cruz in the 1970s, back to the land movement. And what started as a tiny garden has grown into one of the pioneer organic farms in the United States, Thomas Farms. And we're welcoming them to talk about how we indeed can feed the growing population of this earth without harming the very earth that sustains us so thank you for being here on planet watch
3: well thank you it's very good to be here
0: and um joe you've known these folks for a little while because you you invited them so we'll hear from gene in a moment just
1: a little bit of background some of you may remember a show we did last summer where we interviewed bob Staten at his all solar home up in the hills around here And uh, he's a friend of mine, and he's also a friend of Jerry and Gene, and it was at some of his parties that I have met, Jerry and Gene. And I'll just say to start this whole thing off today that the reason we're doing it now, uh, talking about organic farming, is because a major renowned international conference uh, is just about to happen uh, sometime in the next few weeks. It's called EcoFarm. It's held every year down at Asilomar, which is an amazingly beautiful place down kind of in the Carmel-Monterey area right along the coast. They have this wonderful conference center. And farmers from all over the country and even all over the world who are pioneering new, you know, really sustainable uh, techniques of uh, agriculture offering the world a lot of hope, (laughs) they all convene there. And uh, Jerry's actually one of the people who, uh, I guess you're still on the board of EcoFarm,
3: right, or at least uh, helped organize all that? Well, not as a, not on the board itself, but um, I guess one of the people that provide input for the what the eco conference will be. Mm-hmm. And hey, Jean, why don't you say hi
1: there? You're you're next to a mic. Hi, <laughs> <laughs> I'm here. So uh, yeah, well, so we wanted to talk about uh, you folks had a place that out in the country, and it, you just had a big garden, and you kind of turned it into uh, uh, a Big organic uh, farm over time, and uh, you got all kinds of stories to tell about that. But I guess maybe we should just start off talking about, well, what's the big deal about organic anyway? What's important, what's good about organic agriculture? So just straight from the
3: horse's mouth here, Jerry or Gene, take, take it away. Y- y- well, from um, our perspective, it's the organic agriculture or organic farming or, or gardening for that matter is for people who actually live where the farming operation is, is the case with us and raise a a family there, it's important to have an environment that is friendly toward, toward life, in this case human life, but also other life. And I personally came, and Gene also is that, I became interested in the, in the non-pesticide applica- use because um, as a kid, my grandmother and also my mother, it's really strange, were fanatic gardeners. But that was in the period of time in, the, in Los Angeles and in an urban setting in the, um, well, 40s and 50s into the 60s where chemical pesticides were widely used in um, in controlling insects and as a kid i regularly sprayed chloridane every other week on roses and it actually and for those who aren't familiar with chloridane it's it's one of the most toxic chemicals <laughs> that man has used it's a it's a true biocide and uh we did have gorgeous roses, and people commented on it. People came by and took photographs and everything. But also in doing that, in on alternate weeks, I would apply chemical fertilizer to the roses. And um, one of the things that I noticed as a kid is that the... And also steer manure. But one of the things I noticed that every other week when I was doing this, that the... Um, this, Soil became harder and harder than a rock. The steer manure was always totally gone in the two-week period of time, but there, it was a really a horrible thing to look at. Even as a kid, it, it uh, I saw that something was not quite right. And uh, that along with some other things, when we moved up here, this is in 1970, it was after Earth Day, And I had subscribed, and I had just come back from the Peace Corps, and I had subscribed to um, Organic uh, Gardening magazine that Rodale produced. I began to learn that there was another way of doing things. And when we came to a place where we could actually do this on a slightly larger scale than an urban garden, um, we applied the organic methods. And from that, it just gradually grew that... We started to have more produce than we could sell or eat. Um, And then we started to sell some to the uh, natural food stores that were in the Santa Cruz area. And it just grew from there.
0: And some of the principles you mentioned that that identify what the difference is between organic and gene, you could probably comment on this. Besides having no pesticides, I think it's for five years, you can't call yourself organic. Those are recent, fairly recent relative to your experience recent regulations so we know what is and isn't Uh, what are some of the other tenets of organic that allow you to call yourself that in the market when you're selling your produce or when you were
4: well uh one of the one of the things that happened was you could sell produce at the markets in different size containers that didn't have to be regulated and that was something that happened during the brown administration in california So that really encouraged farmers' markets to spring up.
0: But I guess my question is, aren't there certain things you have to um, do to qualify to call yourself organic? One is no pesticides for five years, and the other, I believe, is no nitrogen fertilizer. Is that right? There's certain things you can't do or you can't use that label. Would you Uh, educate us about that?
3: Yeah, it's the difference between um, natural fertilizers, relatively speaking, and synthetic Nitrogens, because nitrogen is one of is is the most difficult of the macro nutrients to provide organically. So there are organic sources of nitrogen. One of the most common is using um, cover crops with nitrogen-fixing plants, and you can you can get a significant amount of nitrogen that way. But there are other forms of natural occurring guano for one from South America. Um, There are a number of others, cottonseed meal and a whole array of other organic nitrogen sources that are used to supplement um, that major ingredient that's missing in an organic system.
0: And the problem with nitrogen, if you use too much synthetic or even too much of natural nitrogen, I've heard, is that it runs off the soil and ends up in waterways, and then we get these dead zones. So at the lower Mississippi, in the Gulf of Mexico, there's massive areas where there's no oxygen and nothing can live because of the excess nitrogen just coming off of these mega farms in Mississippi, Alabama, all the way up.
3: Well, more important than that is that there's a toxicity level that develops in the groundwater when excessive amounts of nitrogen get into the into the water, that can be um, extremely problematic for pregnant women and for others, and that's a problem that um, the Salinas Valley is confronting now, and and even here in Santa Cruz. I remember, um, I also was a teacher in the Palo Unified School District, and one of the assignments I had was working at Sunflower Youth House, and the um, There were approximately a dozen kids in the program, and they did a water test and discovered the nitrate levels were so high in the water it was unsafe for human consumption, and it was in the midst of a a fairly intensive agriculture
1: so I got a little bit of a science question for you here uh, Jerry Uh, you're talking about okay excess nitrogen running off into the water but we've distinguished synthetic nitrogen as in ammonia and stuff that's you know made using fossil fuels and chemicals and then natural nitrogen wouldn't they both run off or is it that the synthetic stuff is more mobile in undesirable ways than the natural nitrogen
3: I think in the case there is this is the synthetic nitrogen is that it's so readily available either in bulk or in 50 pound bags that it's very easy to apply excessive Mm. amounts to make sure and it's cheap you can cover your mistakes and production mistakes by increasing the nitrogen and thus guaranteeing that you're still going to get us a marketable crop Mm. both in quantity mostly in quantity
0: If you just joined us, this is Planet Watch. I'm Rachel Goodman, along with Joe Jordan, and we're talking with Gene and Jerry Thomas, two pioneer organic farmers who have been at this a long time, since 1970, started as a backyard garden, and now it is a, a farm. And you've learned a lot on the way, and organic farming has evolved with you, as from that very early era to now, we see huge farms, like Earthbound, selling, you know, mixed greens to the public, organic uh, that's really different than this very small farm that you started. Uh, any reflections on other changes you've seen on your colleagues, maybe who started with the size plot you did, and now you know are in a different space, or or the whole industry is? Any, Gene, would you like to comment on that change? Well,
4: I think our own farm has gone through um, some growing pains, and so to um, speak, yeah, <laughs> right, no pun intended, uh-huh. and got very large and. Um, when our uh daughter-in-law and son took it over and uh and then they reached a point where they decided to scale back and um do wholesale organic flowers only uh rather than tomatoes and and squash and so forth so in our own little uh realm we've seen that so bigger wasn't necessarily
0: better Um, why was that why did it feel like they needed to go, this is enough, we've got to go back, or back to something more manageable? Or what, what was the reason behind that?
3: One, well, it's one of the characteristics of agriculture in the Monterey Bay area is that it's, by definition, because of what we can grow here and in many cases can't be grown as easily in other parts of the world, is that it's very labor-intensive. So there's large um, demands for labor. Uh, I guess at the peak we had somewhere between 20 and 30 people working. And we had uh, maybe 40, 45 acres in production. So it's just managing the labor and the costs and expenses. And we were doing a, um, nice. a large number of farmers markets too which required a number of trucks and drivers and people who could sell at the farmers markets, as well as the family itself. So it, um, it made, it's more of a manageable level where you're, it's more comfortable and it's easier with um, fewer employees. And the way we're doing it now is that we're just doing flowers uh... cut flowers that are distributed over a good portion of um... central california northern california and um... I've had reports of people telling us that they see them in Nevada, too.
0: And for cut flowers, I mean, me personally, if I'm going to stuff my nose into a big bouquet and smell it, I would rather not be smelling pesticides, so thank you for doing that. <laughs> Anyone That's who wants right. to give me flowers, give me Thomas flowers. That's really true, Rachel, because <laughs> uh,
4: we, we got some uh, a big bouquet once, and it was so smelly of pesticides, I had to put it outside. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's wow. not good. Wow.
1: <laughs> so so what about the um health implications not just to the growers you mentioned that you know you have a family and of course you want to take care not only of your kids but the birds and the dogs and the kitties that roam all around your garden and your farm but uh the customers you know the people who are eating and smelling (laughs) your products um this kind of suddenly got on my radar screen in a big way pretty recently uh i have to confess um you know that hey, it could be that a lot of these problems people are having in their health, especially as we get older, is from a lifetime of being slowly poisoned. And that uh, if we move to pretty much as all organic as we can get in our diets, that's just hugely important. And of course, there, there could be scientific debate about this and how much is this or that really proved, but it strikes me as
3: something to really pay attention to anyway. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, well, you know, you're speaking to the choir here. So <laughs> well, I agree, I agree 100, yeah, 100% or more. It's, and it's, it's actually happening. I mean, we've seen it because we came in at the stage when it there had always been organic farmers and, and health food people's. Um, decades prior to 70, but the Earth Day and there was a consciousness that started to develop and probably in 1970s and 71 for sure there was a major transformation and a market just started to bloom no pun intended (laughs) and at that time we weren't growing flowers to sell, we were it was strictly all food items, um, fruit and, and vegetables. And the, um, it expanded really rapidly. And the first growers that um, came in and started to produce were naive folks, um, many of them back to landers that had, um, had acquired some property and, and it had uh, agricultural potential and started to produce the food. And we were told at the time by the um, extension officers who were operating then that you couldn't do a lot of these things. And we didn't apparently know enough Mm -hmm. to know that we (laughs) couldn't do it, so we went and tried it. And and over time, became increasingly more efficient at it. And much more recently, um, organic... Farming and organic produce is the most rapid-growing component of the food industry. So you're seeing more and more um, mainline producers either switching completely to organic, or they have an organic component. And in order to provide this demand, so it's growing really rapidly now, and it's it's. Um, At a significant production level and that's why you're seeing large operations like earthbound and when you drive by in the Paro Valley or even in the Salinas Valley where there's large sections of organic production driving but you cannot tell one from the next because they're farming it in exactly the same way and their way their technical aspects to the production system that allows large-scale organic growers to basically produce at the same level as conventional growers.
0: And uh just to remind folks, if they'd like to ask a question of our guests, a good way to do that is to write to us at uh, radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. That's radioplanetwatch@gmail.com, at gmail.com. And we're talking with Jean and Jerry Thomas of Thomas Farms. Cut flowers now, but was uh, lots of food. And as you said, um, it's not that they're growing strawberries or lettuce here in the local area exactly the same method because one doesn't use pesticides and the other does but you can't tell looking and they are doing large monocrops which was different than the original small organic farmer doing mixed vegetables so that different species perhaps of insect could live on that farm so these farms that are mimicking uh, monocrop agriculture maybe are losing some of the original idea of cultivating the soil and the environment at the same time, but they are adhering to the law, where they can still call it organic, which I find very interesting as a thing. In a moment, I want to ask you some questions about whether we can, whether the world can be fed given our growing numbers with all organic or not, but hold that thought. I think Joe had a question. Yeah, I just
1: wanted to, uh, we were talking a minute ago about sort of the early history of all this, and it might be helpful to bring some of our listeners, uh, including me, <laughs> up to speed. Uh, I remember just a couple few decades ago when organic there were sort of two things you associated with it one it was way more expensive and two it was way more buggy than the regular (laughs) non-organic crops and of course broccoli is the classic example. And you've come a long way, and nowadays, I mean, that problem's just gone away, and I guess it was, what, IPM, Integrated Pest Management, and other such things have been kind of perfected to help uh, bring this to the more modern state where we are now, or what do you...
0: And wasn't it the universities that gave a lot of that scientific experimentation back to the organic movement? There were people here at University of California, Santa Cruz, experimenting, you know, with... uh, running mustard plants or alyssum in and out of the rows and things that helped or marigolds uh, you know counterplanting and all kinds of methodology that didn't involve inventing a organic pesticide <laughs> so tell us about some of that interplay between you all and some of the academics that were helping also, the movement also hedgerows mm-hmm. um, tell me about hedgerows i don't know about them well um
4: sam earnshaw and Sean and uh the reggie they started, was it what was the organization?
3: Reggie Knox. F- yeah, uh, Organic Farmling. Farming. Uh-huh. Farmland. That's right. a loan organization. Yeah, through so CAF and, calf, and calf, other organizations right. that, mm-hmm. that... Which uh, is
0: California... What, is, what does CAF stand for? For our non-local people.
3: Oh, God. California <laughs> <It's> Agricultural... <laughs> family, family Farmers
0: Family Farm. Yeah, for Family, family
3: Farms. So right. Association of... Yeah. And
0: we have the Organic Farming Research California Foundation. Association
3: of Family Farmers. Oh, yeah, there's been... There's, there's a lot
0: of OFRF, which helps... Get research into the hands of farmers. I understand, and, and, and working
3: it. at a policy level at Washington, and, and it's more of the political type arm of organic to influence decision making at the at the political level.
0: So we, we did get a bill that actually allowed USDA, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, to have an organic label that meant something, so everyone couldn't just claim. That they were natural and get away with like having the brand right Mm -hmm. so that was a major piece of legislation i think that was maybe 10 years ago now i'm not sure but our local mark lipson was very involved in getting that passed
3: mm -hmm. yeah it's it's those um because early on when we first started in the 70s it was pretty much of a you just said what it was and there was no verification that what you said it was is actually true Which um, opened up the opportunity for a a fairly large amount of fraud.
0: Snake oil salesmen. Right. (laughs) Right.
3: So the certifying bodies came, CCOF, California Certified Organic Farmers, and now a host of others that are operating, as well as USDA, um, certify organic growers and have a a rather rigorous system of of actual on-ground inspections and looking at all the materials that you've applied and... On and on in some ways, it can become very burdensome, I
0: particularly imagine when it, you're you know, doing
3: it correctly, but yeah. it, it keeps there's still the potential for fraud to enter into the system, so it's
0: and, and it also allows you to get make more money. I mean, let's face it that that labels worth a lot of money because people are willing to pay more at least at the moment for um higher quality, safer food, and to be able to claim that is maybe worth the money invested in. Whatever the five-year waiting period and the getting your soil free of pesticides, so you can call yourself organic. So exactly. I wanted I wanted to go back to one more question that I promised I would ask, and then, uh, which is, I just listened to a show on the TEDx Radio Hour saying that, in order to feed everyone and not have starvation happen by the year 2027, we're going to have to farm all of Africa, so everyone can eat meat, and we we'll just keep farming more and more land. Is, it, is there some other way that organic farming can inform the conversation to where we don't have to um, compete with every other species on earth in order to eat in this
3: world? Uh, yeah, it's, that's a real quandary because um, I listened to a portion of that same, same show, <laughs> in fact, today. And it's, they're talking about the population expanding at the rate it is or already has and what they anticipate it to grow to in the future. And at the very same time, people are taking on the same dietary um, regime that the, the West, and particularly the United States, has followed, which has been uh, you know very protein-heavy, and which has created this, in order to produce the protein, you have these CAFOs, which are... Um, Confined animal feeding operations or concentrated animal feeding. Well, more important than the feedlots are generally for cattle, but it's it's in the pork industry and the chicken industry and the turkey industry. The animals that are in those systems never get out. I mean, from birth to death, they're in a confined system. With cattle... um, That those operations are finishing operations, to um, to give the cattle the grain in order to get the marbling, which is what people want, and uh, they want tender steaks and not chewy, um, which people associate with grass-fed
0: and the industries that support that are the corn soybean and wheat industries which um are heavily gmo Mm -hmm. we we didn't mention gmos genetically modified organisms but organic label says you can't have those and still call yourself organic and some people say there's problems having um these genetically modified plants because they end up creating um hybridizing with other crops and, mm-hmm. and and actually causing problems for organic growers because right. if the pollen drifts over into their field, they can't call themselves organic anymore. But back to the show we were talking about, it seems to me that it's impossible for everyone to have a steak every day because we would have to mow down every forest, every rainforest, and ruin the entire planet in order to do that. Whereas what I think is true, and maybe I'm wrong, Joe can correct me, is that you could feed everyone now. If we just went to a more plant-based diet, we would have plenty of space to feed the population there is. And that doesn't mean everyone goes vegetarian immediately, but it might mean we eat meat once a month.
3: Yeah, I think it's, um, I heard a show here actually on KSCO this um, Saturday where they, on Michael Olson's um, show, where they had the um, his guest, was stating that right now we produce one and a half times the amount of food that is necessary to feed the world. Mm. But there's a lot of the problems with distribution and waste and uh, spoilage and other issues. It's not the actual production of the food. It's getting it to the people who need it. Well,
1: and another big one that doesn't go mentioned nearly often enough is that a whole lot of people, unfortunately, uh, can't afford to buy food. You know, it's a jobs and employment thing and poverty.
0: An equality issue. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's so many complex things, but a lot of the thought that you are producing a pound of beef with hundreds of pounds of grain, the efficiency loss... In that process is such that you need way more land to grow food that's that high protein. It's a super inefficient way to get your food.
3: Yeah, it's. Th- a- I mean, it's not sustainable on the long run, and it's just it's going to be impossible to do it.
0: So back to organic.
3: I w- want to
1: talk uh, <laughs> about a little triumph uh, that you folks may know about. You know Dick Peshote, uh, he's, a, I think, a strawberry grower, right? Mm-hmm. No. No, well,
0: he's Earthbound Farms, right?
1: Okay, no. well... No, well,
0: something, Lakeside Organic, that's it. Yes. Okay,
1: and they went, yeah. like, organic, right? Yes. Part they switched to organic, mm-hmm. and it's a big operation, and... Uh, uh, my friend and partner, Mary Flodine, has written this whole book. She's been close to all this uh, with the strawberry industry. She taught in Watsonville, right next to the strawberry fields, and there were cancer clusters in the schools down there. There were staff kids families getting sick and the industry insisted no we don't have anything to do with this but they put these big plastic tarps over the fields they sterilize the soil with methyl bromide which by the way if it leaks out which it does it uh, destroys the ozone layer and it also is the same stuff they tent houses with for termites (laughs) well anyway so uh, there was a big battle going on there was this wonderful little organization of teachers called farm without harm (laughs) and now there's a thing down there called safe eggs safe strawberries and they've made some big progress in getting california regulations to i mean there's still huge challenges and hurdles but they're getting they're dragging <laughs> farmers into uh more buffer zones around schools and all these issues anyway mary uh Flo Dean wrote this book which is uh to be published still it's called fruit of the devil fruta del diablo and that's because that is the name that the berry pickers mm. largely migrants from mexico give to the strawberry cesar chavez having come and gone notwithstanding those workers still work in horrible squalor exploitation and so fruit of the devil go to fruit of dot net and you can get the story on all this some excerpts from this book etc
0: and back to the organic farming story so we just have a little bit of time i'd like to go back to your story having been in this field for many years since 1970 is there anything that um, you would like to share with younger farmers or even for consumers that are listening that love to buy organic but aren't sure about it that you can share as a takeaway from this conversation that you know we're all each only one person but if everybody starts multiplying their behaviors we might all impact it on a global scale what can you see organic farming having contributed to that Process that you feel really good about at the end of your careers—not that you're at the end of them, but toward the arc well, of many, I many have years. To just
4: say it's the taste. I
0: mean, we had, we had a
4: squash, a kabocha squash, the other night that was just so beautiful with just butter on it, not even salt and pepper. I mean, that thing was. So so if you like flavor and you like to feel good and be healthy and live a long life and a happy life, it's, that's what it's about. And the beauty, it's like living in a Monet painting.
1: Cool. <laughs> what
4: a beautiful image
0: for radio. Like We can see that and we can ta- almost taste it when you describe it. So organic tends to taste better because the um, nutrients going into the plant are ending up in the fruit and the vegetable, right?
3: It's probably it's. I don't know. You hear these studies (laughs) and stuff that there's no difference, and then others that there are. But there's definitely a difference in the um, the environment that you create when you're in that organic production system rather than a large um, monoculture, which we we have here, even with the vegetables. And it's. But to to get back for people that are starting off, a lot of. there's a change in retail that's occurring now where people really benefit from an experience or they know the story of how what they're going to consume has been produced. And you have, particularly when people, because we have tours and stuff that come to our farm on a pretty fairly regular basis, and they, uh, people are just sort of blown away bike and we do raise some animals but it's not in a confinement system they're frequently out and out and about and um it's it's really it's it's a positive experience for the grower and also for the uh the, uh, the consumer.
0: And more uh, farms seem to be inviting people to visit. We have Gizditch Farms here where you can mm-hmm. go pick your own berries and you can go drink a bunch of fresh cider. And it's a wonderful day to experience. Um, so much of our culture has shifted from agricultural families. Like Jefferson said, everyone mm-hmm. should be farmers, right? And now so few people actually farm. Uh, the, the interesting of
3: thing that's happened where we are in the Coralitas area... Is there's a m- lot more agriculture now than there was when we first came. Well, hmm. we're on so the you wine see, trail. you see tractors <laughs> uh-huh. on the road um, regularly, and you didn't. I mean, that was un- yeah. very unusual. Uh, there are people that are um, producing uh, olive oil. Uh, the vineyards have come in. Um, we have. We're on this wine trail, so we don't produce wine at our operation but we do have a, a stand so people stop by that are coming to on the, do the wine tour and then they stop at, at us also. And
4: well, Wine and wreath. flowers go together, right. And they come out during wreath making time and I have one wreath-, wreath maker said this year I dream about this place. Wow. <laughs> and I thought I like wow, that's, that's, that's quite a compliment.
1: I've still never <laughs> been down there. i got to do that soon. But one thing they apparently have the largest Avocado tree in Santa Cruz County. Is it on your farm? There is that. Well, we're starting. Oh, now
3: going to your door. We're starting to say that from people that have come by that it's not only the largest in California, but possibly one of the largest in the world. Oh.
0: So I guess we aren't going to give out your address, but we could <laughs> we could give out your website if people wanted to find out more about you. Do you have a website? Is that something farmers do? Well, our, our son and daughter-in-law
4: do. You can does. just go
0: into Thomas Farms in Aptos. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they could find you, and they could come by your stand. And, and uh-huh. if they're in the area, we have some listeners in North Carolina, some listeners in Columbus, Ohio. So if they visit during the right season, right. they can come see your flowers and, and buy some for them. Oh, on we own.
3: have lots of flowers right now. So. <laughs> yeah.
0: Tulips already already yeah and and it's a beautiful thing to come see i imagine (laughs) all the colors are just something to
1: winter time in california yes lots of flowers let a thousand flowers bloom
0: indeed we need we need flowers as well as food in our wine and roses right (laughs) bread and roses well we really appreciate um, your time today and if there's anything else you'd like to leave people with any thoughts quotes or feelings um now would be a good time to do that if you would like to have anything mm-hmm. hey, well i'll tell you
3: what we're, <laughs> well we're like, I just, yeah support your local farmer yes. and, oh yeah, yeah and actually go to ecofarm.org.
1: Oh, yes. i think it is right uh-huh. look that up but you might want to sign up for this it's a, like a two or three day conference Ecofarm.org. And it's uh, you know, this is great fun. they got a big barn dance and a big bonfire one or two of the nights.
0: And, and the food you know. is the best of any oh, conference. Food. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this yeah. is all organic <laughs> from the local growers. So, um, Well, thanks for stopping in, Planet Watch. And really, um, the take-home for me is that if we farmed the way you farmed, uh, where you let all the bees and bugs stay alive, then we'll be a lot better off and we'll be healthier all the way around. So thank you for blazing that pioneer trail so many are following along. Thank you for having us. Yeah, and so stick
1: (laughs) around the last few minutes. You're welcome to jump in at any point if you're inspired, and maybe we'll go wine tasting speaking of the wine trails right after the show here but uh <laughs> now down, all the, the other
0: listeners are jealous <laughs>
1: <laughs> so uh
0: virtual wine but um
1: tasting. i have to point out we haven't pointed it out yet today is our first anniversary show and thank you all for coming to share it with us uh, we did our first show with the geologist and oceanographer gary griggs as our interview guest on january 15th 2017 that was almost exactly a year ago i mean today's january 14th and if you ever noticed any given date, like, you know, your birthday or January 15th or uh, Groundhog Day or July 4th, those dates always advance by one day of the week from year to year, except during a leap year. <laughs> then it's two- So, in other words, if it's a Tuesday this year, next year it'll be a Wednesday, unless it's a leap year, then it's a Thursday, and so on. Anyway, more on all that later. But um, speaking of... Um, anniversaries and cycles and things i do want to make note of the big day coming up tomorrow and this time that we are celebrating and honoring right now mlk day martin luther king day in honor of uh respect for all the world's people regardless of you know all the different categories of people they're all humans they're all our brethren and sistren if that's a word and um I said this once last summer very cryptically, but I'm going to say it more deliberately and clearly now. And it's kind of a little physics thing, but I mean this as a commentary on social issues. White, and this is especially of interest, and I call it to my, the attention of my Caucasian brethren and sistren. I first said this the Sunday after the horrible thing that happened in Charlottesville, Virginia last summer. I'm going to say it now. White is a melting pot of all of the colors. So there you go. Just think about that. But now, on to more fun things. Uh, we, speaking of immigration, we've got space immigrants. Uh, MLK Day is about immigration. Also, we talked a few weeks ago about a rock that was cruising through our solar system that they realized, hey, this, this is an alien rock. It's not of this solar system. It's not of this world. Well, now it turns out, just this week, astronomers have been realizing that there are stars in our galaxy, that are intergalactic immigrants. They have floated in here from other galaxies. We can talk more about the science of that later on. But speaking of aliens, I got a really cool thing to do for you now. We are right now at a major anniversary of a major motion picture that was made by a major filmmaker. I'm not going to tell you any of the details. I'm going to leave this as a quiz and a riddle for you dear listeners out there. I'm going to. There was a five-note cryptic little piece of music that was in this film, and uh, no, this is not copyrighted music because I whistled it this morning into the voice memos thing on my iPhone, and I'm going to play this little five-note melody for you, and uh, I'll give little trivial prizes to the first three of our listeners who email us with the answer to where did this melody show up?
0: I bet I can whistle it for you without (laughs) giving it away.
1: Oh, you think you know what I'm talking about Let me see if I can do it.
0: Something That's pretty close. good. That, that <laughs> low octave, right. that octave, the, F, the higher
1: F to the lower F is hard to do. That's why I recorded it. La, let la, me, let me, la, la,
0: yep, la, la. you got it.
1: Now, let me play it here on this thing. We'll see how it sounds. I did repeat
0: sounds. it during the film quite a bit. <laughs> it got in my head.
1: <laughs> so, here we go. Here we go. Here it is. Let me see here. I'm going to put it up next to the mic and uh, see if it plays here. Um. I'm going to play it again. <laughs>
0: You may be communicating with someone you don't really (laughs) want to communicate with.
1: Right. This was in a movie (laughs) that was a big deal uh, almost 40 years ago, more than 40 years ago. And uh, so we're kind of at an anniversary of it. So uh, I don't know how you would even look that up, uh, that tune. I guess you can... There might be things on whatever, one of these web miracle things where you can play that tune and it'll tell you exactly what movie that came from. I
0: think you just have had to have seen the movie. Yeah,
1: but you got to go see that movie now. It's, <laughs> see it was it again. such a great movie.
0: That's <laughs> worth, worth seeing. I again. see
1: somebody calling in, but no, probably, you got to email us. We're probably going <laughs> to answer. You got to email them. us, radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. You know, there's a silly thing
0: that happened every Thanksgiving with my ex brother in law. He would um, sculpt his mashed potatoes into this <laughs> mountain and then drop the gravy on top of the mountain, and it was in a we're shape. giving away the farm no. now <laughs> okay, i won't give away any more of the answer
1: devil's tower wyoming <laughs> a really cool <laughs> place by the way if you've never been there
0: but the native americans in that area called it like the center of their universe and they had a whole mythology not negative it wasn't around the devil at all it was a regenerative earth starting kind of a mythology around that formation about how it got started and there was deities involved
1: that's pretty cool a, yeah because it,
0: it defined their you know geography the people mm-hmm. who lived originally around that area just for um sides we um we will be talking in future shows i want to give a little preview and um, we're hoping to get some experts in to talk about attempts to drill off of the coast of california oregon and washington and how we can resist that that will be coming up in the next few weeks and um, we hope to also you know, find out some of the latest scientific breakthroughs that maybe we haven't talked about. If you ever have suggestions for this program, would like to write to us, you are welcome to do so at Radio Planet at Gmail dot com. And again, if you want to get our show as a podcast, you can go to planetwatchradio.com. dot com. So just invert those two, Planet dot com. And you can subscribe to our podcast, have it on your phone, and never miss an episode.
1: And I got a little sky note for you. This coming week is going to be a great time to do... Not only planet watching, but moon watching. My favorite phase of the moon, it's a narrow crescent now in the early morning, but by most of this week, it will be a waxing crescent moon in the evening sky. It's my favorite phase because it's both beautiful and interesting. You see the crescent moon, the Cheshire Cat, grin, but then you can see the entire circle of the rest of the moon. It's just dimly lit with this silvery glow that comes from the reflection of the sun off the earth onto the night side of the moon. So watch for that this week and uh yeah any final thoughts from anybody in the room we got a half dozen
0: they'll have to be very fast if you have them
1: we got seven humans in the room here
0: (laughs) collectively how about if we say (laughs) go planet watch radio one two three (laughs) okay go Go planet
1: Planet watch Watch radio Radio. we're gonna have a party sometime soon if anybody (laughs) out there hey maybe we could have a party down at your farm no 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 but uh anyway (laughs) um that would be a nice place for a party i suppose Anyway. Indeed.
0: um, We really appreciate you listening. We'll be back again with you next week. Special shout-out to the folks at WCOM in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Another shout-out to the folks in Columbus, Ohio, on the Green Radio Network.
1: WGRN. Keep an eye on the sky, by the way.
0: (laughs) I'm Rachel Ann Goodman with Joe Jordan, and thanks for listening to Planet Watch Radio.